UCLA has hired one of their own. Chip Kelly is going back to what we think is a familiar role. And Coach Prime has filled out his staff. Let's go. It's the number one college football show. What's up, kid folk? Welcome to the number one college football show. I am your host, RJ Young. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today on the show, we got to talk about Coach Prime staff. We got to talk about the Michigan, Michigan Exodus. We got to talk about what the hell is going on in Alabama. But first, we got to talk about the biggest news coming out of last weekend that is Chip Kelly has decided to exit UCLA to join the Ohio State Buckeyes. But before we get to just why that's such a cool move and a good move, I want to get to this. Let's do the let's do the timeline, right? Because I understand how these things can feel like they're all coming at once because they really are. But dates are important. So January 19th, Ohio State has hired Bill O'Brien, remember him, to be their offensive coordinator. And, you know, for the first time, we're thinking, okay, Ryan Day is serious about this CEO head coaching role where he's going to give up the play calling privileges because – one of the things about Bill O'Brien is he needs to have the play caller sheet. I think I think we're going to see just what Ohio State is capable of without Ryan Day needing to go up to his quarterback after every single series and have a conversation. Some of those conversations were getting a little bit more heated as the season was wearing on, and maybe he gets to pass that off to someone who he trusts more than he trusts anybody else in football in Chip Kelly. But the thing about Bill O'Brien was he was going to be the guy, right? Will Howard, Julian Sayan, whomever it was going to be the quarterback, they were probably going to run an offense that was similar to the one that he was running at Alabama, if not New England. Let's remember the happier times, but also a guy that understands what it means to be a head coach in the Big Ten, as that guy, probably his tour de force, was bringing Penn State back to a position where James Franklin could take it over and they could repeat being Penn State. Now, after he chose to take that job, we get about 12 days go by, right? January 31st. Jeff Halfley exits Boston College as the head coach to become defensive coordinator for the Green Bay Packers, which is a good job, right? Not the least of which is because Jeff Halfley was an outstanding defensive coordinator at Ohio State. You remember him bringing us the Bosa brothers, bringing us Chase Young in that 2019 defense that is still, for me, one of the standards for what I think of as the kind of defense you need to have to win conference championships, let alone get to the college football playoff and be successful. So with his exit, we got Boston College open looking for a head coach, and Bill O'Brien's name popped up for a number of reasons, not the least of which is he's a Massachusetts native. He's done two stints with the New England Patriots, and being close to BC, he understands, having gone to Brown, what it means to be head coach at BC, even as BC is a, well, a difficult job, to put it mildly. And yet, being a head coach is still being a head coach, being in the ACC is still being in the ACC. So he decides to take that job. Same day. Hours apart, Chip Kelly decides to exit UCLA as head coach to become the offensive coordinator at Ohio State. Now, this one I was alluding to in last week's live show, right, because it was very clear that Chip Kelly wanted to get out of UCLA. He had interviewed for the job at the Vegas Raiders that ended up going to someone else, right? Same thing with the Seattle Seahawks, but I think the Seahawks would have wanted him if he wanted to go if he did not want to go to Ohio State. We'll get to that in a minute. But he ends up going to Ohio State where he gets to do what he always wanted to do. He gets to coach ball and run the offense without having to worry about things like talking to me on media days or recruiting 
And in the recruiting, man, we could have that discussion go on forever because that's the moment where I remind y'all Will Lyles was a lot of their success at Oregon while Chip Kelly was putting people in positions to succeed and giving rise to what I think is my favorite run of Oregon football ever that includes like Jeremiah Masoli, Dennis Dixon, LaMichael James, the Black Mamba himself. We can keep going on here, but that was a very fun time. And then seeing what he was able to do at UCLA, which by the way, is not an easy job, right? Winning eight games in each of the last three years. It wasn't appreciated by UCLA folks for one reason or another, right? And I think most of this is Chip Kelly's looking at this going, this is a difficult job, and y'all expect to play at a high level. Given what we have, that's difficult to do. Now you're being forced to transition as the CEO of a major corporation to a large conference where you go from being a Pac-12 pillar to a Big Ten baby. And I don't know that Chip Kelly wanted them problems, least of which when I talked to him or Ryan Day about the prospect of coaching against each other, neither one of them was looking forward to it. And them being friends, I think, helps with this, meaning that Ryan Day doesn't really have to worry about the offense in any way because he learned the offense from Chip Kelly as quarterback at New Hampshire when Chip Kelly was head coach at New Hampshire. Again, they go way back. Now, after Chip Kelly decides to make that move to Ohio State, we get another opening for head coach in which we get to ask the question, does anybody want to be the head coach in college football at this particular period? The answer is yes, but I understand why the question is asked, right? The thing about UCLA, though, is they wanted to get Chip Kelly up out of there because they didn't feel like Chip Kelly was invested. Like, we're talking about Chip Kelly getting run out on a rail if he doesn't beat USC. Not only does he beat USC, he routes USC, okay? Routes Lincoln Riley and SC, and that ain't enough to get the UCLA fans to calm down in Westwood, okay? So he's looking at that. He's going, all right, get me up out of here. Like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I've got all the money that I'll ever need. I just want to coach ball. Ends up Ohio State. So what does UCLA want? They want somebody that wants to be there. They want a Bruin man. And you know what? They ended up getting one. Deshaun Foster, outstanding tailback at UCLA, outstanding running backs coach at UCLA, and good enough to be running backs coach for the Vegas Raiders, gets the job as the head coach at UCLA in February after the transfer portal window has closed, all right? I'm putting emphasis on that because the man has a job to do now. Now, he had an introductory press conference, which was filled with all the hope and optimism that you would expect from a guy who was coming home to coach his alma mater. But let's get this out here, right? What we know about Sean Foster is he was a great running back and he was a great running backs coach. Matter of fact, Seven years, running backs coach. He had consecutive top 20 finish nationally with the Bruins. Bruins tailbacks were selected in four straight NFL drafts. Foster, seven years. They, I mean, they were pretty outstanding. Uh, Josh Kelly was at the back of his introductory press conference going, I love you, coach. And I think that's the sentiment, right? Now, the problem with this is all the players love their new head coach into Sean Foster. That's a problem because the wisdom is you don't hire the guy the kids like because that's their buddy, and your buddy can't coach you, right? Your buddy needs to be able to get into your behind if it's time to get into your behind. And I don't know if Deshaun Foster's got that sort of flavor. Along with, we don't even know what kind of staff he's going to put together. And this is a tremendously big job for a first-time head coach, not just because it's UCLA, but as I mentioned, because they're transitioning from the Pac-12 to the Big Ten, which is loaded, and it ain't like they're going in there as one of the best programs to be joining. You're going in there with Washington, who played in the national championship game. Oregon, who looks like a national championship contender. Air, goodness, I keep going on about this, right? But the point to raise here is that Deshaun Foster, being a black head coach, is going to have all 
of this at front, right? I'm big on this because when we get black head coaches, it's a big deal, right? Carl Durrell had this job. He didn't last very long because it's difficult, right? The same thing, you look around, they expect to be 10, winning 10 games there. We're talking about Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame, who was also the player's buddy that made it work. But there are times through the last two years, you're going, dog, can you figure it out? And that's with an outstanding staff around him. Still some blunders. Think about Ohio State and Notre Dame last year. That's what I'm talking about. Can Deshaun Foster survive those sorts of things? Interesting. But more important for me is hiring an alumnus is going to satiate your alumni base at UCLA and your fan base at UCLA because they got a dude that they want to get behind, right? One of their own, as it were. Talking to one UCLA fan, and he told me, I just want somebody that gives a damn. I didn't feel like Chip gave a damn. I want somebody who wants to be the head coach at UCLA. And I said, cool, you got somebody who gives a damn. Now let's see if gives a damn can win games. Because that's what it's about, right? I went to the University of Tulsa when Ty Graham was a head coach. Ty Graham did not mince words about what he was there to do. And he did not act like he was there to be friends with anybody at the university. He was there to coach ball, right? He would show up to College Fitness Center, act in some kind of way, get under people's skin, go win 10 games. It's all fine, right? If you win, you can do what you want. If you do not win, then you're going to have problems. Then you're going to have to shake hands. You're going to have to kiss babies. You're going to have to go to more than one caravan stop, okay? Because you ain't doing enough, baby. And that means winning football games. Now, does it work to hire an alumnus to coach your football team? All right. I'm going to give you some names here, right? Guys that go back to coach their alma mater. Brent Key at Georgia Tech. Kenny Dillingham at Arizona State. Jeff Brom at Louisville. Mario Cristobal at Miami, Clark Lee at Vanderbilt, Kalani Sataki at Brigham Young, Mike Gundy at Oklahoma State, Kirby Smart at Georgia, and for giggles, Scott Frost in Nebraska, David Shaw at Stanford, and Jim Harbaugh at Michigan. Okay? You know what? I'm going to throw one in there just for the bonus, for the, for the old heads in the room. Phil Fulmer at Tennessee. All right? Mostly because Phil Fulmer and Jim Harbaugh are the last two guys to coach their alma maters to a national championship. Also, take a look at that list, right? Does it work for you to hire the alumnus? Sorta, sorta. But we had, you look at the numbers. So 538 did this in 2019. They took a look at, from 1975 to 2018, a total of 146 alumni head coaches got jobs. 52.6% won their games, and then 51% of non-alumni won their games. Point is, it's middle of the road. It's low risk, right? And if and it's a high ceiling. So if Deshaun Foster goes out and wins six games, they're going to throw a party this year. Deshaun Foster goes out and wins three games, he's going to survive to 2025. And then we'll have to wait and see. Either way, it's tough in these streets, right? Because we're getting down to a place where guys are coming in and guys are going out and you don't have any continuity in your program. And that's difficult to win without continuity in your program, which leads me to Jim Harbaugh. And how Michigan is faring host Jim Harbaugh. Now, the headline here is Jim Harbaugh has taken half the staff in Michigan with him to Los Angeles to help build the Los Angeles Chargers into what they hope is a Super Bowl contender, right? So Harbaugh has taken Jesse Minter, Mike Elston, Steve Klinkscale. You get what I'm saying? Jay Harbaugh ends up going with Mike McDonald to Seattle, but it's another guy that was on that Michigan staff that is no longer on that Michigan staff. In the case of one Jay Harbaugh, a guy that was at least entrusted to be an interim when his old man was sitting out for, you know, self-imposed violation of, you know, allegedly uh, 
lying to NCAA investigators. Make sure I get that wording just right. But it means that for the first part of Sharon Moore's job, he kind of had it okay. He got to elevate from within. Kurt Campbell becomes his OC, so for so on. On the defensive side, he got to build it from scratch. So when I looked around and I saw he was able to pull Wink Martindale into Ann Arbor, I said, oh, okay, this is a man who's very much not trying to change the DNA of Michigan defensively. He liked what he saw, which is guys that are going to be big and long on the outside, set a hard edge, and he's going to have hybrid dudes like Mike Sanders still in the middle of the defense to try to play that really aggressive run-stopping but not blitzing sort of defense that gets the ball back to the offense where they can run the ball. Wink Martindale, who worked for John Harbaugh for over a decade and who has worked with Mike McDonald, runs the same sort of defensive philosophy, right? So I get that. That, that makes all the sense in the world to me. I would I would offer here, hey, Wink, maybe dial back the blitzes, buddy. I, maybe, maybe, maybe don't send as many as often because that's one of the things that Jesse Minter did so well is when he used his blitzes, they got home, right? And frequently, he didn't have to send more than five, right? Which is one more than you're going to send on every other down. And depending on when you send that person and where you send that person from, you can probably get tackles for loss. Will Wink Martindale have the same sort of, shall we say, conservative nature? I doubt it. Wink's been doing this for a very long time. Wink is 60. Think about that. Your head coach is 37. Your offensive coordinator is 37. And Wink Martindale is 60. Okay, giving me real Biff Pogi vibes over there. Okay, and that's good. That's a good thing because Biff was good for Jim Harbaugh and good for the Michigan Wolverines. I think Sharon is learning just how difficult this job can be as he is trying to put together a staff that gets them on pace to be competitive as the defending champs and what the expectation will be at Michigan in his year one. Now, along with that, you get to see the exodus of talent, not just talent, uh, not just coaching talent, but playing talent. Earlier this afternoon, we're taping this, we're doing this live on a Tuesday. We had Michigan see 18 of their players selected for the NFL Combine. That is two more than the record set by 2020, or excuse me, 2019 LSU into 2020. Remember what 2019 LSU was. And that they had 16 guys invited to the combine was a big deal. Michigan has had 18. Okay. More than that, now Michigan is set up to set the record, to take over the record for the most players drafted in April in the NFL draft if they get past 15. That number was set by Georgia in 2021. Okay. And we all know what we think of that Georgia defense in particular, but that Georgia football team. What I find wild about all of this is Jim Harbaugh said this in July, and we mocked him for it, just as we tend to mock Jim Harbaugh for many things, and then he gets to thumb his nose at us, just like Michigan fans get to thumb their nose at us. Look, we sat out for these alleged recruiting violation lies. We sat out because we uh, did not know that Connor Stallions was doing Connor Stallion things. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. And we still went 15 and up. And you know what? For Michigan and their identity, where they start – Michigan, I'm going to put it another way here, okay? I come from the world of academia. Before I got this job, I was looking to be Dr. RJ running my own English department, which is another way of saying I pay attention to academia and how different universities talk about themselves, especially when they're trying to recruit you as a student and then as faculty. At the University of Tulsa, they have the audacity to call it the Harvard of the Midwest. 
I don't believe that is so. I think there's one Harvard, right? And it's in Cambridge. It's been around for a very long time. However, at Ann Arbor, when I was going up there on a visit, looking to perhaps join their graduate program, they sold in the bookstore a shirt that said, the Harvard of the Midwest. And I'm going, wait a second. Michigan, be Michigan, be a public-private Ivy. It's okay. And yet they get underneath everybody's skin and they want it that way. They like it that way. They believe that they're smarter than you. They believe that they're more talented than you. And now they get to stand on that going 15-0 with 18 guys that are selected for the NFL combine and might have more than 15 guys selected in the NFL draft. And they're able to do it with a tremendous academic record. It's perfect. If you're the president, Santa Ono, this is how you draw it up at the University of Michigan. Continue to cash those checks for the law school, for the English department, for what have you, because Michigan is doing Michigan things. Again, that Harbaugh said this would happen only just feeds into the idea of what Michigan is and who they're going to be. Now, I wonder how that's going to translate going into the rest of this year, because we're all going to be watching them very closely, and we're all going to expect them to be competitive if not repeat as the chance, because I mean, that would just go with it. I, I could tell you all the ways in which I think that Michigan is deficient and then Michigan will go run off 15 in a row once again, just to spite me. So I'm going to try to get ahead of that and just be like, you know what? They defend the champs. We'll let it be what it is. Now, speaking of we're getting back to the national championship game, let us talk about the son of the South. Let's talk about Alabama. A lot been going on at Alabama. In the last month, literally the last month, Nick Saban steps down. You have a coaching search that leads to Kalen DeBoer at Washington. He comes down and wants to bring his staff with him. I think this is interesting because Kalen DeBoer has gone out of his way to say, look, the continuity of my staff is the strength of my programs. The guys that I have are the guys that stay with me. Everybody knows how this thing is supposed to run, and I trust them to run it. That was very clear. When he became head coach at Alabama, he's not trying to upset what Alabama has done, get himself inside of what the process is, and then build from within. One of the key pieces to that, many people thought, was Ryan Grubb, offensive coordinator at Washington, been with Kalen DeBoer for some time, was pouring concrete, now he's calling plays. Over the last month, there's been some speculation about what Ryan Grubb wants to do, because as soon as Kalen DeBoer took that job, it wasn't a slam dunk that Ryan Grubb was going to be the offensive coordinator at Alabama. He wanted to be the head coach at Washington. And when he did not get that job, he took to Twitter to tell people, hey, look, I wanted to do it. I'm sorry that I couldn't get it done, but we're going to go to Alabama. We're going to try to build something. On February 9th, which is the same day that Bill O'Brien left Ohio State for BC, Chip Kelly left UCLA for Ohio State, Ryan Grubb left Alabama for the Seattle Seahawks to join Mike McDonald. The timing of this cannot be missed because the timing of his decision to leave Alabama was also the day that the 30-day transfer window for Alabama players closed following Nick Saban's announcement that he was going to retire. Changing head coach means you got 30 days to enter the portal and see what's out there. Now, do I think that most of the kids that were going to transfer already transferred before Ryan Grubb made this decision? Absolutely. I don't think it's that's sinister, but I would be remiss if I did not point that out. I'll also tell you, the man was recruiting. I know this for fact. He also was showing up to Alabama events. I think he was even event, uh, he was even introduced at an Alabama men's basketball game on signing day. 
Okay, so his heart was in it until it was not, which is what I expect from coaches, what I expect from anybody in a job, right? Like, I'm a F1 fan. Lewis Hamilton is going to race his last year for Ferrari, uh, excuse me, for Mercedes before he goes to Ferrari. I think he wants to win a world championship in Mercedes. I think Ryan Grubb was building toward a national championship at Alabama, but given the opportunity to return back to Seattle to be in the NFL, to call plays, I don't expect him to miss that or pass that up. Also, cool note here. The sons of Bill Belichick, Pete Carroll, right, are at the Washington staff, right? And now we're looking at Jay Harbaugh also at Seattle as the son of Jim Harbaugh. Uh, Hall of Fame coaches giving Hall of Fame progeny opportunities, and then those guys going out and making a, a name for themselves is kind of fun. It's fun for me. But now we have a vacancy at Alabama with Ryan Grubb going to Seattle, which leads me back to this other really interesting note. Alabama is going to have to hire its ninth offensive coordinator in 11 years. Check this out. Since 2013, Alabama offensive coordinators go Doug Musmeyer, Lane Kiffin, Brian Dable, Mike Loxley, Steve Sarkeesian, Bill O'Brien, Tommy Reese, Ryan Grubb for a month. And now what we think is going to be 35-year-old former Bama tight end and former Washington tight ends coach Nick Sheridan. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because it should. Right. Nick was on that staff in 2020, 2019, when Kalen DeBoer was off its coordinator in Indiana, helping groom Michael Penix. I also would like to point out that Nick Sheridan had a hand in tutoring Josh Dobbs at Tennessee. For those of y'all that watch a lot of the NFL and saw what he was able to do on the fly with the Minnesota Vikings, not knowing any of the terminology in the plays, goes out there, executes for Kevin O'Connell. Outstanding. But you know what? That dude is a literal astro uh, astronaut engineer. So, you know. That's what it is. Maybe there's something to that. And maybe there's something to Nick Sheridan being in on recruiting those sorts of players to say nothing of the kind of players that he has at the quarterback position right now. I also add in here, Bill Sheridan, his daddy, been coaching for a long time. As a matter of fact, Bill Sheridan, Nick Sheridan's father, is on the very short list of men who have won a Super Bowl and an XFL championship. He's linebacker's coach for the Arlington Renegades. That one's free as I am absolutely covering the United Football League and having a good time doing it. But what does this mean for Kalen DeBoer? It means he gets to keep his continuity, right? Nick Sheridan knows the offense, knows what he is responsible for, and frankly has been an offense coordinator before. He was last offense coordinator at Indiana 2021 after Kalen DeBoer left that job for Fresno State. It didn't go exactly the way that you planned, but I think that's one indication for why Kalen DeBoer is like, no, no, no. You know how it went the first time, and now you get to do it again. You get to do it with me this time, right? I think that Nick Sheridan is in a great spot to make a name for himself on a national scale, given what Alabama means and given what that position offensive coordinator could mean for him in the future. Maybe we're talking about Alabama having a 10th offensive coordinator hire in 12 years in 2025. One more note on that. I think the window closing is going to be helpful for everybody right now because Sean Foster is going to get to really coach the guys at UCLA and not just convince them not to transfer when the portal opens up again in the spring. Same thing is true at Alabama. I think you need the time to win guys over, to let them see how you roll, and to learn how they roll and see if you can't come together to be a really great football team. That is not what is going on. At the University of Colorado. As Deion Sanders took the Super Bowl weekend to announce hires that he had been planning to make official at Colorado. Okay. First one that we got to talk about, the big one, 
is the defensive coordinator. Okay. Charles Kelly left that job to go back home to Auburn, where he's going to coach secondary, so forth, so on. And you had to know that Prime was going to look very hard at who might be his defensive coordinator because the defense was the hold back for that four and eight team last year alongside the offensive line, which I'll get to in a second. They gave up 34.8 points per game last year after getting off to a 3-0 start in the season 4-8. and Now, Prime would be the first to tell you they were in all but two of those games. Like, they absolutely got their butts kicked twice, right? Just, just weren't in those games. But the rest of those, we're talking about one-score games. We're talking about one play here, one play there. So who does he go get? He went to go get former Cincinnati Bengals safeties and secondary coach Robert Livingston as his defensive coordinator. It's going to be the first time that Robert Livingston has called plays for anybody. But let's take a look at what he did at Cincinnati. Von Bell, Jesse Bates III, Dax Hill, all his guys, right? Last year, Cam Taylor-Britt had four INTs on that Cincinnati defense. They had 17 total picks on that Cincinnati defense in 17 games. I also kind of like the trajectory of Robert Livingston. His FBS experience amounts to exactly one season as a quality control assistant at Vanderbilt. But the thing to note here is that was James Franklin's Vanderbilt in 2011, and that team went bowling, making it to the Liberty Bowl, which at Vanderbilt is a tremendously big deal, right? And he used that position to vault into what has been a lengthy 12-year career in the NFL. I kind of I kind of love that, right? So you have a guy that's got NFL experience who's been around great safeties and great cornerbacks and prime being the greatest safety and quarterback, the greatest defensive back to ever play the game is always going to have an eye on what that is. What I think is interesting there is this is back to back that he has made this decision, right? This is back to back where he has decided, no, I need a guy that knows how to coach the secondary to call the defense. What Charles Kelly was able to do at Alabama. For instance, Charles Kelly was a guy who was like going up to Nick Saban going, you sure we can have Devontae Smith playing corner? I would have loved to have seen what Devontae Smith could do playing corner. But you get the point there. I think this is going to be a great move for guys like Shiloh Sanders, Trevor Woods, Miles Slusher, and of course, Travis Hunter, right? What I don't know is how you're going to look up front. Because his experience around a 4-3 means that you're going to need to have at least, what, 10 dudes that can rotate in there and wreak havoc? Not necessarily something that Colorado was great at. So it's an uphill climb for the defense coordinator, period. But I think Robert Livingston has the energy and the resolve to do it. Now, offensively, he added Pat Shermer to the offense. Well, I should say he elevated Pat Shermer to offensive coordinator. Now, this is something that we all kind of thought was happening from the moment that Sean Lewis had his play calling privileges removed last year and Pat Shermer inherited them. But I think people aren't really looking at Pat Shermer the way that Prime is looking at Pat Shermer. I probably looked at Pat Shermer the way you did for what it's worth. But I'm going to put it this way. The way that I think Prime is looking at this is that Pat Shermer did a great job as a play caller at Colorado in Sean Lewis's stead to end the season. He also had to call a game without Shadour Sanders because Shador Sanders was out with a fractured back for the last game of the season. Okay, They had sacked that man 52 times in one year. That can't go on. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But Pat Shermer has also been around great quarterbacks for the better part of two decades. All right, So take it back to Donovan McNabb with the Philadelphia Eagles. 
and what he was able to do there uh, at being quarterback's coach for Donovan McNabb at Philly when they made their first Super Bowl appearance 2004 in 24 years since 1980. And then you can take it a little bit further on when he was the offensive coordinator for perhaps the greatest coordinator of all time and Steve Spagnola. Look at how many Super Bowls that guy has got as a defensive coordinator for the St. Louis Rams. And he had at his tutor, or as she has to say, he was mentoring, he was teaching my guy, Sam Bradford, St. Louis Rams. Go from one to 15 to what was seven and nine. It's an improvement, right? It's an improvement. Is it what you want? No, but I think it speaks to more of what he was able to do. And then I got to see what kind of a play caller he could actually be when he got to Philadelphia once again, but this time with Chip Kelly as the head coach and Nick Foles as his quarterback. That 2013 Eagles team that people don't talk about, I think the right way, set records for points scored, TDs, passing yards, and fewest turnovers. Like Nick Foles was actually great. And that was the breakout year for him. 27 TDs, two INTs, and eventually coming off the bench to lead the Eagles to a Super Bowl. So I think Pat Shermer's in a great spot here. And I think that's what Deion Sanders looks at and values when he looks at Pat Shermer. Now, add Jason Phillips to the wide receiver group. That means Brett Bartoloni becomes the tight ends coach. But the one that I think you and I were raising eyebrows at is Phil Lodeholt as offensive line coach. For my Sooner fam, that's one of our own. That is a giant man also coaching giants. I'll never forget the first time I read about Phil Lodeholt. It's like, he can't possibly be this big. It was that big. My goodness. And he's been working toward this, right? As an analyst at OU, as an analyst at UCF, working his way into being in a position to coach great offensive line. Now, he's got one stud in Jordan Seaton that he's going to have to develop in a hurry. And then he's going to have to find four guys that are better than the last four guys that they had at Colorado that can keep Shadour Sanders upright because that man's stock is continuing to rise. Okay? People know now after he set the school record for passing yards in a season in 11 games, not 12 with over 3,200, that Shadour Sanders has the goods, right? He can be an outstanding quarterback at any level. I think that part is done. What we don't know is, can you give him two and a half seconds to complete passes? And can you stop people from waylaying him? Like the only dude that got beat down more than Shadour Sanders last year is the Heisman Trophy winner. Because every five seconds we're watching Jaden Daniels getting ragdolled as he is making plays with either his arm or his legs. Just keep that man safe. That's all I'm asking for, right? Let's do our Sanders get back there and cook, and you will find ways to win football games. Bill Lodeholt's going to have to put together an offensive line with Pat Shermer that can protect that dude, take advantage of the speed they got at the skill position, speed they got in the backfield, and get make it do what it do. Like, you're already getting guys that are going to run on the Colorado track and field team. Right. Dylan Edwards already did this in the 60s. You're going to get more guys like that because that's who prime is. He's going to be able to get skill positions in. But building from the outside in is difficult. But he's continuing to try to do that. Also, while I'm here, Nick Harbor went out and ran 675 as a defensive end in South Carolina. And I can't tell you all how fast that is in 60 meters because anything under sub seven is flying. But to be that big and to be that fast, it's illegal. I don't know what law is breaking, but it's a breaking one. It's illegal. My God, we making them that big. We making them that fast. You get some of them dudes over to Colorado. That's a problem. That, 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 that's a big 12 problem. All right. Prime 
is able to recruit that kind of talent, but first you got to get an offensive line to keep this dude upright. We're going to get to see what they look like April 27th for their spring game. I'm excited about that. They also got a season opener against North Dakota State August 31st. Yay! Colorado going to go up the mountain the rough side, and we'll see what it is. But I am going to be here to chronicle it one way or another. All right, that's going to do it for this live episode of the number one college football show. We will be back on Wednesday with a very cool Nick Saban piece about the guy that Nick Saban was before he become, became the greatest college football coach of all time. Very excited about that. It's going to be a treat. Please show up for it on Thursday. More of these are in the works, but this one, this was special. All right. Our number one college football show leads of screening are Jack Coakley and Torn Westfall. They make us better in the film room. Production assistants Kiara Santana and Jim Cunningham put the special in our special teams. Social producer Javion Duncan make sure the recruits and the rivals see the cake we bake. Gabe Sable is sending in the signal. Senior producer Catherine Cordaggi sees the entire field from the booth. Lead producer Tyler Wojak calls the plays from the sideline to play snaps on my clap. We will see y'all back live next Tuesday, but Thursday for the next Saban piece. Till then, Stay low. Keep those feet driving. Doses.